part of his time here in the Bible class hour to introduce him. Many of you know him because he's been here before, but you know him through his writing, through house to house, heart to heart, through the tracks uh, that he does, and uh, uh, you've heard it uh, through polishing the pulpit, many other things. But uh, we're thankful that he's here today. His family didn't get to come with him today, but uh, uh, we wish they could be here, but we understand that. I believe they have their vacation Bible school going on over at Jacksonville this week, but we're glad that we've stolen him away from that uh, to be with us. We will give him a little more formal introduction during the worship hour this morning, but before we turn it over to him, Brother Rick Tubbs will lead us in our prayer, and then following that, we'll let Alan have the floor. Brother Rick. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity we have to come together today to study from your word. Father, we pray that we'll give full attention to the lessons that are taught, that we'll learn from them, that we'll use them to make our lives better and to help others. Father, we pray that the things we do would be fully acceptable in your sight, that we do things in accordance with your will. I pray you'd be with us throughout the entire week and the entire series of this gospel meeting that uh, much good will be done and a lot will be accomplished in your kingdom. Father, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Let's start in Genesis chapter 1. I have been looking forward to this day for a long time. It's good to be with Mark and Marlene again. We've been friends since college days, and I don't know that I have a dearer friend on earth than Mark Howell, and I appreciate his work in the kingdom, and I don't need to tell you how great that work is, living with him and working with him every day, every week. I was asked to speak at a lectureship a while back on the subject of, tell me something about the Bible that I don't know. And I first got that subject, I thought, I don't know what I'll do with that because it sounds like I'm insulting the audience if I get up and say, here's some things about the Bible you don't know because uh, so because I was speaking to members of the church that have been studying the Bible as long as I had many of them. But the more I studied it, the more I determined that there was an unlimited number of things that any of us do not know about the Bible. And I learned a tremendous amount researching that lesson. I've done it a couple of times in meetings and everywhere I go, it's of great interest to people to find these details about Scripture that were there all along, but that we had not discovered or had not noticed. Now some of these, as we go through them this morning, you're going to say, I already knew that one, but I dare say that all of us will learn something from this lesson, some part of the Bible, some detail that we had not noticed before. I remember reading about a man who was in isolation in darkness in a prison, And the only time during the day he had any light was when they would bring his food in. They would open the door long enough to take the dish out that had been there previously and set a new dish of food in the floor. And when he ever heard them coming down the hall, he would position himself with his Bible so that the light from the door would shine over his shoulder and on the pages. And during that minute or two minutes it would take them to open the door, to do what they were doing and close it back, he would feverishly read from his Bible. The guard was curious about that. He said, you know, every other prisoner is hungry and as soon as I open the door, he waits for the food, he grabs it, he eats it. But you seem to show no interest at all in the food. You just 
read every time I open the door. Why is that? And the prisoner said, Well, I can find my mouth in the dark, but I cannot read God's Word in the dark. William McPherson was a young man involved in construction. He had dynamite to go off in his hand. He lost his hands. He lost his sight. He lost the feeling and part of his face, but he survived. He became very interested in God and religion after that near-death experience. But he could not see to read the Bible. He had no hands to use Braille to read a Braille Bible. He tried to read a Braille Bible with his lips, but he did not have enough feeling in his lips to be able to decipher the shapes and the meanings of the words. But he found that he could decipher the moon-shaped Braille with his tongue. And so for the 65 years of his life, he read through the Bible six times with his tongue. And did you know that there are many people, perhaps the majority of people, in the land this morning who have good eyes, good hands, good minds, who've never even read the Bible through one time. God stooped to give man his mind written on paper, to give man a map to heaven, to give man a guide to a successful life in this world, and men will not even condescend to open his pages and to read what God has in store for them. But it's easy to sit in a chair of judgment on our generation and say, people aren't interested in the Bible, they don't read it, but if we polled our congregations, it might be the case that many have never read all the way through the Bible who are sitting in church pews. Or it might be the case that some who have read the Bible in years gone by have not read the Bible through in the last recent memory, and some who have not opened a Bible from one Sunday to the next. And a Bible may even remain on a church pew waiting for the next public service of the church instead of going home to be a companion on a daily basis and sitting on the table beside our easy chair, our reading chair, our nightstand, where we can take it in. I know that we have more than one copy of the Bible, and I'm not being judgmental if your Bible was on the pew when you came in. Maybe you read from different Bibles, and maybe you use an electronic Bible on your phone or tablet. But the point is the same. Are we reading the Bible however we consume it on a regular basis? And we need to have, an out, and we need to take the opportunities that we have to make time to feast upon the words of God. Sometimes we might not say it this way, but we might think, well, you know, I really already know the Bible. You know, I grew up in the church. I've been going to Bible class longer than I can even remember. And I've taught Bible classes in the past. And I've preached on occasion. And you know, I've, I know the Bible. I'm sure that's the case with most of us in here, at least many of us this morning. But there's none of us, if I may be frank, who knows as much about the Bible as we should know about the Bible. 
There's none of us who has arrived at a plateau where we could say, I don't need to study the Bible anymore. We never get to the point in life where we could say, you know, I've eaten a lot of meals in my life. I've been eating since, you know, before I can remember. And I have cooked a, a thousand, a ten thousand meals. I don't need to eat any. No, we're all going to eat lunch here in a little while. We're all going to be hungry when the next, when the sun rises tomorrow. We'll be finding something for breakfast and lunch and dinner tomorrow. The Bible's like that. It feeds the soul as food feeds the body. So let's go into uh, just a simple lesson. These things, some of them may seem trivial, but I think the overall point is that we need to know more about the Bible than we know, and we always have more that we can learn. So let's let's go through. A few facts about the Bible. I like this from the original King James Version. It's not in our modern, uh, not usually in the modern King James translations, but this was the preface of the original KJV Bible in 1611. If we are ignorant, the Scriptures will instruct us. If out of the way, they will bring us home. If out of order, they will reform us. If in heaviness, they will comfort us. If dull, quicken us. If cold, inflame us. Talk about some general facts about the Bible. It's a Bible class, so feel free to answer if you know the answers or want to venture a guess on any of these. Some of them will have blanks to fill in, some of them just facts. In point of length, the average word of the Bible contains how many letters? Anybody want to guess? Or maybe you know? Seven. Seven is close. Ten over here. Anybody else? Five. I think I heard it back there. Five is the right answer. Fewer than five in the King James Bible, uh, which which says that the Bible is not a complicated book to read as far as its content. It's not filled with you know large words that we have to spend uh, time looking up. It has some difficult language in it, but by and large, it's written in simple language that even children can understand when they're exposed to it. Number two, some chapters of the Bible are acrostics and were meant to be memorized. The most famous of these is Psalm 119, of course, the longest chapter of the Bible, 176 verses, and it has the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, eight verses each. But there are other acrostics. Psalm 112, did you know that the worthy woman or the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, 10 to 31 is written as an acrostic, and those Jewish schoolboys and girls who were growing up in synagogues would spend their time, much of the time in school, memorizing these sections, and it was easier to memorize when it was associated with an alphabet, just like it's easier for us to remember A, you know, something A starts with an letter A, and then B and C and so forth. Got to figure out which way to point this thing here. First color mentioned in the Bible. Anyone want to guess? Maybe you know. Purple. Purple? No? Green. Green is right. Genesis 1, 30, every green tree. The next one. You may have to advance it for me back there. I seem to have trouble with technology. The, last, the first word of the Bible and the last word of the Bible. Let's do the last word of the Bible first. Anyone remember? Maybe read that recently? Amen. So be it. So the last word of the Bible is God has put His final period to the final sentence of the 
Scriptures, amen, so be it, forever it stands written. First word of the Bible in our English translations, of course, is in the beginning. But in the Hebrew, as I understand it, the first word of the Bible is God in the beginning. And so the Bible is based on the foundation of the, the one who wrote it, and that would be God Himself. In fact, if you wanted to talk about the foundation of the Bible, you could say that the very foundation is God. The foundation of the rest of the Bible is the first chapter of the Bible. We know how we got here because Genesis 1 explains it to us. The first chapter of the Bible is the foundation of the first 11 chapters of the Bible where you have man being unified, all of one speech and one language. You have the, the experience of man's sin and God's punishment in the flood. And so the rest of the Bible is founded on Genesis 1 through 11. So all the Bible founded on God, then on chapter 1, then on the first 11 chapters, then on the rest of the, of the Bible. So it all goes back to the fact that God is the author of the Bible. What verse from the Old Testament is quoted more in the New Testament than any other scripture? That's, a, that's probably a difficult one. I'll give you number two first. Number two is Leviticus 19.18, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's quoted nine times in the New Testament. But the scripture that's quoted more often than any other is Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says that his enemies would be made his footstone. That's quoted, quoted or alluded to 12 times in the New Testament, partially quoted 12 times in the New Testament. Word Satan, which means adversary or one who opposes, is mentioned 19 times in the Old Testament, 56 times in the Bible, but he's never called the devil until Matthew 4, verse 1, when Jesus was tempted of the led of the Spirit in the wilderness and tempted of the devil. The word uh, opposer in the Old Testament, diablos, devil in the New Testament, means accuser or one who slanders. Who's the last person to perform a miracle in the Bible? As recorded in the Bible. I had read this, as you have, a lot of times, but it never dawned on me that what I was reading is Paul in Acts 28, 9-11, when he healed Publius of the bloody flux and others of the island where he was shipwrecked who came to him with various diseases. That's the last record of a miracle in the New Testament. The word hate is found 87 times in the Bible, but the word love is found 311 times. Who's the first man in the Bible mentioned as shaving? Joseph was brought up out of the pit, uh, out of the dungeon, and before he was prevent, presented to the king, they shaved him, cleaned, cleaned him up, put clothes, new clothes on him, and brought him before Pharaoh. So uh, Joseph is the first man mentioned as shaving. Jesus is the most often mentioned person in the Bible, but who's second? Mentioned 1,139 times. The man after God's own heart is David. The woman who's mentioned more often than any other in Scripture is Sarah. She's mentioned 60 times. Rachel is second, 47 times. And Sarah is the only woman in the Bible that we knew her age at the time of her death. That's uh, Genesis 
I said, 20, I might be wrong about this, Genesis 27. She was 127 years old. I follow this paragraph. Read it with me. In the Bible, there was a king named So, 2 Kings 17.4, a city called Adam, Joshua 3.16, an altar named Ed, Joshua 24.34, a man named Hen, Zechariah 6.14, and a lady named Noah, Joshua 17, verse 3. Interesting facts about the Bible. Number next, dogs are mentioned 41 times in the Bible, but cats are mentioned how many times? Zero. Now, if that offends you as a cat person, I might quickly point out that dogs are not spoken of in any complimentary ways in the Scriptures. Dogs are compared to prostitutes, greedy people, and evil men in the Bible. Uh, so, of all the domesticated animals, all of them are mentioned in Scripture except for cats, which is interesting. Now, let's talk about little-known facts of the Old Testament. That's what I said we would go to Genesis chapter 1. It's interesting that Hitler, when he came to power, forbade teaching and study from the Old Testament, what he called the, Jew, the Hebrew Bible, or the Jewish Bible. During that time, the Bible was still studied and even written on, uh, but it was, un, it was done mostly in secret. He, one man was arrested for writing a commentary on the Psalms during Hitler's reign, but he argued that this was the Bible that Jesus read. This was the Bible that Jesus quoted from. This was the Bible that predicted all the events in Jesus' life, so why would we not study it? And he was, of course, exactly right, because how can you know the New Testament if you don't know the Old Testament? It's the foundation the New Testament is the old the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Some interesting facts. And if we have time, we'll look at twenty-five discoveries from the Old Testament. I mentioned to go to Genesis one as we began class, and so we're finally caught up to Genesis one. Have you ever noticed that the fourth, fifth, and sixth days correspond to the first, second, and third days of creation? Uh, here's a little chart that shows it. The first day, God divides the light from the darkness. On the fourth day, God made the lights, the sun, moon, and the stars. On the second day, God divided the waters. On the fifth day, God created the life that lived in the waters. And then on day number three, God created the land and vegetation. And day number six, God created the life that would live on the land and eat the vegetation. So there's an interesting designed to the creation. God is a God not of confusion but of organization. And so you would expect that God would create the world according to a plan and by design and everything was logically placed where it needed to be before it was needed. The animal, he could did, for instance, he did not create the animals and not have anything for them to eat already created. God didn't create the the fish and not have any water for them to live in, so God created the, the world by a logical plan. The next one is Genesis 3, verse 6. The Bible does not say that Adam and Eve ate an apple. Many people assume that. Most Christians know that's not the case. But what kind of fruit was it? Well, I don't know and you don't know, but I do know one kind of fruit that was in the garden because they made themselves clothes out of 
Fig leaves. So it could have been a fig. That's the only plant we know for sure was in the Garden of Eden. That's in Genesis 3, verse 7. The next one, Genesis 5, verse 2. Let's read this one. It might not be as familiar as the first couple to most of us. This is a law of forfeiture found in the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 5, verse 2. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. Isn't that interesting? Now, some scholars would say that since Adam means man, he's just denoting the species. He's calling them humanity, in other words. But most would fall on the other side of that discussion, and that's where I, what I believe is being said here, is that he called their family name Mr. and Mrs. Adam, because they too, they too became one flesh, and God joined them together in Genesis 2, 22 to 24 in marriage, and from that union, of course, came all of humanity. In the New Testament, Jesus builds on that, Matthew 19, 46, quoting from that same passage and applying it to the marriage law in his, uh, in his kingdom. Now, the law of corporature is interesting. It's an outdated concept now in America, but it would have been good if we'd have remained uh, at least in principle, at least in reality, even if it were not on the books as the law. But corporature refers to a period during which, during which a woman is married and reflects an old-fashioned, this is from Wikipedia, common, legal law, common law legal concept regarding the status of, women, of a woman during marriage. Under corporature law, wives did not have a separate legal status from their husbands. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So we're a union. We are an entity. We are a family unit when we marry. And if everybody saw it that way, there would be far more motivation, impetus to keep these marriages together instead of splitting apart, having his bank accounts and her bank accounts and his vacation, her vacation and and then ultimately moving on to another relationship. But it goes all the way back to the way God set it up in the beginning. God called their name Adam. God joined them together. Do not let man put asunder. The next one. Another discovery from the Old Testament, Genesis 6-9. through 9, When every imagination of man's heart became only evil continually, and God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, yet 120 years... 120 years, that was the life expectancy of humanity from that point forward if they did not repent. And as you know from reading Genesis 6-9, through man did not repent. In fact, Noah preached to a generation that was very hard-hearted and he was successful in preaching and that he did what God commanded him to do and he gave the people ample warning for what was coming and he saved his own family so we could never say that Noah was a failure but he only had himself, his wife, his three sons and their wives that got on that boat, everybody else died. How many people were on the earth at that time? Well, those who study population say that there was a billion people by that time in history. A billion people. And how many of them died? One billion minus eight. Every human and every air-breathing, land-dwelling animal perished in the waters of the flood. That should serve as a warning to us that God, though long-suffering and though loving, 
eventually must be just. He gave man warning. And our generation, and every generation since Christ, has the New Testament. We have the promises of God. We have the record of the love of God. We have the record of the sacrifice of Christ. We have the benefit of the Gospel going into the world and the church being established in almost every, within driving distance of almost every place in America, for sure, and in most of the world, at least much of the world, the free world. And yet eventually, if we spurn our opportunities, there's going to come a day when God's judgment will be rained out on the earth and there will be no further opportunities. And the story of the flood, or the account of the flood, shows that God does mean what He says and that God will eventually carry out His threats. The first individual to be destroyed by God was Ur in Genesis 38, verse 27. At least we have, that we have a record of. The next one is Genesis 40, verse 20. Another discovery from Scripture. Only two birthdays are mentioned anywhere in Scripture as far as I can tell. One was Pharaoh's birthday and the other was Herod's birthday, Matthew 14, 6. And have you ever noticed that both of the birthdays are associated with an execution of a person? Remember the baker that was in prison with Joseph had a dream and his dream was not in his favor and he died on Pharaoh's birthday. New Testament, of course, the daughter of Salome danced provocatively before Herod and his men and he promised her up to the half of the kingdom being coached by her mother. She said, I want John Baptist's head on a charger. And so John the Baptist was killed on Herod's birthday because of the wickedness of Herod's wife that he was not supposed to have and John had pointed that out and that eventually caused John to be killed. And I believe is it the Jehovah's Witnesses that don't celebrate birthdays even to this present day because of that fact that birthdays in the Bible are associated with death. Number six, Genesis 50-22. The youngest or the smallest lifespan in Genesis is 110 years of any that we have a record for that died. Of course, Enoch didn't die. But Joseph lived 110 years. So he almost made it to 120. Uh, but the lifespans are coming down in the book of Genesis. And we may even study that this week uh, from Psalm 90 about the lifespans, uh, the three score and ten years that we have now, reason of string, four score years, and how that ties in with the history of man. Here's another one. What about from Exodus 7 through chapter 9? The Egyptian magicians that withstood Moses do not have their names recorded in the book of Exodus. In fact, you can read the entire Old Testament and you won't find their names anywhere, but I can tell you their names this morning. And it may be that if you're going ahead of me and you're thinking from Scripture, you also know the names of those two magicians whose names are not given in the Old Testament. But they are known to anybody who can read in the New Testament because Paul gives us their names, Jannes and Jambres, from the New Testament found in 2 Timothy 3, verse 8. How else could he know those names except by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? The next fact from the Old Testament, Exodus 17, 11, this one is interesting. It may be that you have known this story a long time, but there was a battle won because Moses stretched out his hand against the Amalekites. The children of Israel were fighting down in the valley below. Moses is up, and as long as he held his arms up, 
It would go well for the children of Israel, for the soldiers of the Hebrews, but after a while, his arm, you know, have you, you ever tried to hold your arms up for a long time? You ever hung sheetrock, for instance? Boy, and after a little while, especially holding up that weight while somebody's nailing at your arms, you had to bring them down and give them, let the blood flow go. Well, Moses held his hands up and he just couldn't do it, even though it was so serious. He saw people dying down there on the battlefield whenever he let his hands down, but he just couldn't hold them up. And so they brought him a stone, he sat on it, and Joshua on one side of her, on the other side held up his arms to the going down of the sun, and it was a great victory for God that day. That's an interesting story from the Old Testament. About how, and that's where we get that phrase we use today, holding up somebody's hands. You know, we need to practice that in the church. Elders need their hands held up. It's challenging to lead a congregation. And so we ought to encourage them, uh, literally hold up their, their hands, but a note in the mail, uh, a compliment in a four-year, uh, once in a while, uh, telling, taking them out to, to lunch and say, thank you for what you're doing for my family and all these years you've served this church. We've been faithful to the Lord and we're doing great things for God. I know you have a part in it. So Bible teachers need some encouragement. It's, it's hard work to teach those children in these classes. But when's the last time you told your, your child's Bible class teacher you appreciated the work they're doing for your, the spiritual interest of your child? Preachers need encouragement. Well, really, all of us do, don't we? You notice somebody beginning to miss services a little bit? Maybe just a word of encouragement might be a difference, a tipping point back to the right instead of in the other direction if nobody notices or no one seems to care. Holding up each other's hands. The next one is uh, from the book of Leviticus 19.9, several other places. Old Testament law required farmers to leave parts of their fields unharvested. They would leave the corners of the field. And also, when, whenever they were harvesting and they dropped it on the ground, they didn't pick it up. They left it. Because there were poor people who didn't have any land to farm. There were poor people that didn't have enough to eat. And so after the man that had enough land and enough wealth to be able to harvest, they could go in. They couldn't go in the standing corn and take what belonged to him, but they could go in after he harvested and they, they could pick from the corners. Now, they're not going to get rich with that, but they're going to have enough to make some bread and provide some meals for their family. And that's still practiced in some parts of the world even to, to the present day. Deuteronomy 21, 11-13, women had to shave their heads before marriage, but not all women. Only those who were taken in battle and brought in as uh, loot or as uh, wives for the soldiers. But they, that was a requirement, an unusual requirement from the Old Testament. Women forbidden to wear, to wear men's clothing. Deuteronomy 22.5 And men forbidden to wear women's clothing. I think that might need to be read again in this generation, don't you think? When people are confused about whether they are men or women. The next one, Adonai Bezek, this is from Judges chapter 1, cut off the thumbs and toes, big toes, of 70 kings. He had been quite successful in battle. Now the reason that they would do that, it sounds barbaric to us, and it was, but if the choice was, he's going to execute me, or he's going to cut off my thumbs and my big toes, I would probably choose the latter, and you would too. The reason for that is because in that day, kings were warrior kings. If you don't have big toes, then you can't run. You don't have your balance, so you couldn't lead troops into battle. You didn't have your thumb, and you couldn't hold a weapon, at least not effectively. 
And so, effectively, taking the thumbs and the big toes would take a king off the battlefield. He could not lead his troops. And that made it safe for Adonai Bezek then to be king over this people that he's just conquered. But interestingly, when he was conquered, that's what happened to him. Judge not that you be not judged. Matthew 7, 1 and 2, with what judgment you meet, it shall be measured to you again. So the same principle of reciprocity also applies generally in life. A lot of times we'll say it this way, what goes around comes around. So if we treat others fairly, if we're kind to others, generally speaking, those things are going to come back in a circle to us. That's certainly what happened at an Bezek. The next one. A woman killed a man by driving a nail through his head. Judges 4, 17-21. You remember the story of Sisera and Jael? And he came in tired from the battle, thirsty, and asked her to, to give him something to drink, and she, she did, and laid him down in her tent. And he said, you stand at the door. If anybody comes, you, you know, shoot them away. Don't tell... Well, she let him fall asleep, and then as an act of heroism for her people, she drove a nail through the enemy enemy's head and he was destroyed. Interesting story a lot of people don't know from the Old Testament. The next one. <clears throat> this is interesting. The Gileadites tested to see if people were Ephraimites by making them say Shibboleth. But they couldn't say the H. They said Sibboleth. And if they couldn't pronounce it correctly, they were executed because it was known then that they were not truly Gileadites, but they were Ephraimites pretending to be Gileadites. That's from Judges 12, 4-6. Delilah did not cut Samson's hair. Judges 16, 19. I guess it's a small point, but others came in at her calling and trimmed or cut his hair. She did not actually... She did cause him to fall asleep on her knees. And then his hair was cut and of course his eyes were put out. He was made a prisoner. Eventually he was killed. Judges 16, or he committed suicide in the destruction of his enemies. The next one, this is an interesting one. Some critics point to this from the Old Testament and say the Bible has mistakes in it. Not true, but how would you answer this? 1 Samuel 16, 10 and 11 and 1 Samuel 17, 12 and 14 say that David was the youngest of eight sons of Jesse. But, 1 Chronicles 2.13-16 say that David was the youngest of seven sons. So, how do we explain that? Is that a mistake? I mean, it could either be, it's either eight, seven or eight. Could it be both? How would you answer that? Is that a, scribe's, a scribal error there? Somebody just going from memory and not remembering it right? Well, whenever a contradiction in the Bible, wherever it is, whatever it is, is proposed, the, all that the Christian or the believer has to do is to show that there is a plausible answer. And there may be more than one plausible answer in a lot of cases. But there is a plausible answer here that's relatively simple. It's, it's when was it written? You know, something can be true at one time that's not true at a later time, a different time. You might say, Mark Howell is rich. Well, it may be that he's not rich now, but in the future he inherits a lot of money, becomes rich different times. So it is here. Second uh, Chronicles written after the captivity, much later, maybe referring to a later time in David's life. Most scholars believe that one of his brothers had died between the writing of 
Samuel in First Chronicles. So at that particular time in history, he was the youngest of seven sons, seven surviving sons of Jesse. A man whose hair weighed about six and a half pounds for his annual haircut. Do you remember who that was? This man had trouble with his hair. Later he would get his hair caught in the tree and darts through his hearts by Joab. Who are we talking about? David's son, Absalom. Uh, there's some disagreement about the, the 6.5 pounds. I don't know if we have any uh, barbers or hairdressers in here, but you, if you're thinking, boy, it would take a lot of hair to weigh 6.5 pounds... You'd be right. Uh, there are different explanations for that. Most likely one is that those who are very wealthy would put gold in their hair, um, decorate it, and it was uh, considered a, a luxury, a style. It might also have to do with the, the different weights of the shekel. Of course, pounds is our measurement. That's translated from the shekel from the Old Testament depending on whether it was the temple shekel or the average shekel. Uh, most likely, though, it had to do with gold very heavy, and then when he trimmed it, it, it would be six pounds altogether, his hair plus the ornaments that were cut from it. Second Samuel 14, 26. Solomon's temple, a curious fact about it. Of course, David wanted to build the temple, wasn't allowed to because he was a man of war. His son was able to build it with the materials that David had collected in his lifetime. It was a magnificent structure. It was built, though, without the sound of construction at the construction site. How did they do that? Well, they shaped the stones at the quarry or, or at a distance, and then they brought them in. They were such great engineers, stonemasons, that they were able to carve them where they would fit without having to trim them on site. I suppose that was considered reverence for the God who would inhabit that temple to, to build it in, in quietness. 1 Kings 6, verse 7. Another fact. There was a man who outran the chariot. If you mark that one in your Bible, 1 Kings 18, 41-46. Another one. Of course, that's with Elijah. Um, 1 Kings 18 is the... Destruction of the 450 prophets of Baal. And so, in the sound of rain, he's bowing down, running to the king chariot, the king's chariot. going. So that's an interesting chapter. What about this one? Sometimes critics of the Bible will go to this one in 2 Kings 2. God sent two bears to kill 42 children that mocked a man for being bald. Children said, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Um, Probably there's more. There's a couple of things there that are in play that don't come immediately to the attention of the English versions. One is that the word children, especially children, can refer to someone who's a teenager, even a young adult, up to 25 or 30 years of age. So we're not talking about you know seven-year-olds that are mocking someone who haven't reached their majority yet, who are not accountable for what for their actions. You're talking about someone who's recent age and they know better. And the second thing is that what they're saying here is we want Elijah to be dead or to be gone, just like, uh, or Elisha, just like Elijah went up in the chariot 
He said, you go out too. You go. You leave us alone. So see the disrespect for God and for God's prophet in that. And if um, in 2 Kings chapter 2, this is comment. I think this is from um, Albert Barnes. But he says, if the Holy Spirit had not directed Elisha's solemn curse, the providence of God would not have followed it through with the judgment. The Lord must be glorified as a righteous God who hates sin and will reckon for it. Let young persons be afraid of speaking wicked words, for God notices what they say. There's a great lesson to be learned there. We should be careful when we speak of sacred things that we do not do so irreverently, for God hears. You know, He said when they murmured in their tents in the wilderness wandering, God punished even for what they said when they got home to their wives in their tents in private, not what they said out in public. So we must be careful what we say on the way home from church services in the car about the preacher or about the elders or about the church. And especially if there are little ears listening from the back seat. Sometimes people, will, when their children get older and they have no interest in the church or they're, they're going into the world and they'll... They may come to the elders. They may come to the preacher. Help me. And of course, the elders and preachers are happy and, to, and do what they, they can, but sometimes the concrete's already set. How do they get where they are? Well, did I, did I love the church in their presence? Did I speak highly of elders and preachers and leaders of the church so that they would come to... You know, the church is not just a, a theoretic entity. It's not just an academic it's not just something from the Bible I read. The church, especially a child, is the people at church. That's the representative of the church. So I must be careful to speak well of the church before non-Christians, unbelievers, and before my children, but also before my spouse to encourage him or her that they also will have the highest possible respect for God's Word. I think you learned that lesson from the story of the, the, the bears. I think I've got to stop here. So let me just go through. I'll just give you these last four from the Old Testament as we, as we end. Uh, number 21, the woman whose body was eaten by dogs. Jezebel, 2 Kings 9, 30-36. After the temple of Baal was destroyed. This is one I did not know before researching this. It's interesting. The Israelites used it as a latrine. You talk about the ultimate in, insult they took the house of false worship and made it into a bathroom after it was over. Number 23, there was a father who, a man who fathered 88 children, 2 Chronicles 11:21. And then 24, prophet Isaiah walked naked for three years, Isaiah 22 and 3. And sometimes naked in the Bible doesn't mean fully naked, uh, to be in a loincloth or to be you know, stripped down to the, what we would call the underwear. But it seems in this case he was actually naked. It talks about them being carried away. And it was a symbol of Israel being carried away in captivity and of their buttocks showing as they left. They've been stripped to carry as slaves into, the, into a foreign nation. And then number 25, God sued Israel for breach of contract in Micah 6, 1 through 18. Only time in the Bible where God initiated a lawsuit against humanity. That's an interesting section. Well, thanks for your attention uh, this morning. Uh, this afternoon at the 1.30 service, the Lord wills, we'll go through the New Testament and do something similar from facts about Jesus' life and the early church that we might not have seen there before. Thanks for your attention this morning.
put them under here. Oh, yes, sir. We got three and three on the collection. I got three breads over here and I got three juices. Three juices. Three juices here and two breads out.